to have you here, and thanks for checking in. Uh, this has been a story the past couple of days that's been playing out. And again, kudos to Bob Fife, Steve Chase, and the Globe and Mail gang. Uh, and it's a story that is starting to get to a level now that is a bit more complex and arcane, but you and I should know about it as informed Canadians, and we should know about some of the implications. Who will forget the detention of Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig? Thousand days in Chinese custody, used as hostage slash brokerage uh, items in the foreign dispute over Meng Wanzhou, the chief financial officer of Huawei, the daughter of the founder of Huawei, and of course Canada exercised an American extradition warrant. She's held in Canada, of course, freed to her two multi-million dollar Vancouver mansions. And of course, the extradition process went through. Finally, as she was returned to China, no further steps taken. The two Michaels were released. All along, we knew that Michael Spavor, very plugged into North Korea, uh, an insider who had access to Kim Jong-un. Remember, he brought... Dennis Rodman, the basketball player over, he would jet ski with Kim. I mean, Spavor, as a Canadian, had this really unique relationship. Michael Kovrig was a diplomat, and he was working with a think tank slash uh, organization uh, on leave, as he was then, from the Department of Global Affairs. But it turns out now Global Affairs has a group called the Global Security Reporting Program. Michael Kovrig was working with and through that program, feeding Global Affairs information about China. He had met Michael Spavor, passed along to the Global Security Reporting Program some of the things Spavor had told him, and the Chinese say, well, there, you're both spies. Now, this doesn't in any way relieve China, what I still, I think most reasonable people see as hostage diplomacy, but it contextually puts, I think, some things in play. So what exactly is this global security reporting program? Is this like our version of the CIA? CSIS, of course, uh, does security intelligence work, but it's not overseas in embassies and doing this kind of work. So... What is this global security reporting program? Well, I don't know, but I know someone who does. Stephanie Carvin, Associate Professor of International Relations at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs and co-author of a book called Intelligence and Policymaking, The Canadian Experience. And we find Professor Carvin in Ottawa this morning. Stephanie, thanks so much for taking our call. Hey, always my pleasure. Um, I'm just going to give you and your listeners a slight warning. I seem to have, in the 30-second intro, developed the hiccups. So um, I'm going to keep talking, but there might be a minor interruption. <laughs> I had hiccups once. I had hiccups once for five days, Stephanie. Try okay. doing a radio show with that. I, <laughs> I, I have. That was the weirdest sick leave in the history of this company. Um, so right. Nothing right. you do can in any way reflect. <laughs> um, right. I just noticed. I was like, oh dear. But um, yeah. So, so, but we, I think we can. I think we can. We can proceed. I don't think this is any kind of Russian interference operation. So we are, <laughs> we're, we're good to go. <laughs> okay. Am, am I wrong in that? You know, MI six 
does foreign intelligence for the Brits. MI5 is domestic. Um, FBI, the U.S., CIA, foreign. Canada, CSIS, domestic. Uh, do we have a foreign security intelligence group in Canada? So, good question. Um, so, yes and no, which is not helpful. But um, basically, we have no dedicated foreign human intelligence agency. And so there's human intelligence, which is where, you know, I would meet with you and we would have a discussion about, an, a, you know, an issue that was of interest to to the spy agency uh, and the government. Um, and then you have something else called signals intelligence, which is any information that goes through the global information infrastructure. So like your emails, text messages, cyber spies, you know, um, which is the Canadian security uh, establishment. Um, so you're right. We don't have a Canadian CIA. There is no Canadian MI6. What we do have are agencies which sometimes collect information, sometimes intelligence, as per their mandate. So um, Department of Defense, for example, when it's abroad um, and it's, you know, overseas and it's, it's doing work, say, in Syria or Latvia or places like that, it's gathering intelligence and it can gather intelligence from humans as tied to its mandate. Then we get to this weird creature we've talked about called the GSRP. The GSRP, the Global Security Reporting Program, is run through global affairs. And they will stand up, shout, pull their hair, knock over chairs to tell you they are not an intelligence agency. But they do go out. They do get training. They know how to talk to people. And they gather information that is of interest to both their uh, department and the government, right? So um, they kind of walk this fine line and they'll say, look, diplomats throughout history have written reports to their home country. And that's all they're doing, right? They're, they're writing, they're meeting with people, they're writing reports and they're sending it back. Um, and that I think is, is what they're arguing. But the reality is that, you know, China looks at those kinds of activities a little bit different than how we look at it. And as a result, they think that we're engaging in spying. They think that Michael Kovrig was engaging in spying. And now there's a story today that also two other couples, the Garrett's, yes. that were detained back in 2013, may have been caught up in similar circumstances. So it, now you, you're, you point out so aptly that China, of course, tends to react uh, to anything that they see as inimical to their interests. They love to allege exactly. spying, right? Right, exactly. And like they have an extremely like you're you're spot on in your introduction, right? When you said that this is this does not justify the detention of the two Michaels, and, and you're right, it, it doesn't, right? Like, um, you know, Michael Michael Kovrig was not working for the Canadian government at the time of his arrest. Um, so, you know, it's kind of hard to make the argument that he was involved in, in, in spying, right? Um, so I think that, um, but they have an extremely vague national security law. And any kind of information gathering whatsoever can be seen as spying. And so they, you know, under their own laws, this is how they interpret it and this is what they do. Professor Stephanie Carvin is an academic at Carleton University, uh, international relations professor. So, okay, so I, I'm kind of in a conundrum here. You, you could look at the Global Security Reporting Program and the way you've described it, this is just what that government department of global affairs does, like defense does. So, you know, do we really need separate parliamentary scrutiny of this? And if we start to move that way, are we actually kowtowing to China's increasingly paranoid definition of spying? 
Um, look, I think all agencies and departments, regardless of who they are, what they do, and their significance to the security of Canada, need oversight and review, hmm. right? Okay. Um, it doesn't matter. I mean, one of the things that China doesn't do, I think, is a lot of oversight and review. Um, and that, so this is what makes us different. I mean, look, there may be some uncomfortable truths here, but we're a mature democracy and we can handle it. Um, so yes, we do need some, I, I think, um, so there's been one report on the program that was put out by the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. They just touched on it briefly. We are waiting on another report that was completed in 2021, but given the sensitivities around the two Michaels, appears to have been delayed for two years. So they're looking at uh, releasing that particular report soon, um, which by all rumors, was was pretty critical of of some of the ways that the GSRP is conducting its business. So I think this is, you know, two things can be true. The detention of the Michaels can be um, un- completely unjustified, which I believe, and Global Security Reporting Program may be walking some fine lines that we need to rethink in an era where increasingly authoritarian states are willing to clamp down, especially on a country like Canada, um, to make an example uh, for the rest of the world. And, and that is almost certainly to me what, what seems to be happening here. So the, the global security reporting program inside global affairs, what's the recommendation for the way it should be scrutinized, the way it should be transparently reporting its work? It is accountable to the minister, so um, Global Affairs could actually put out its own reports about the activities of GSRP officers. And in addition, um, you know, it, it is it has to answer to the National Security uh, Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. This has been one of the this is a this is a committee of MPs that uh, investigates. In you know, they were these are MPs who are given clearance; they have the authority to kind of look into what this agency is doing and then report on it. And then there's a third agency called, uh, or a third area, which is called the National Security Intelligence Review Agency. And they're the body that kind of looks and, you know, if, if the committee of parliamentarian kind of looks at how things are running and how well these agencies are doing their job, um, and CIRA, I, I apologize for the alphabet too, but they're the ones who kind of look at legal compliance. Is the, you know, is there an appropriate legal regime in place? And uh, is, the global security reporting program um, adhering to it, and do improvements need to be made? That's the report we're waiting on, right? And so I think that this is this is what we're waiting on. Uh, we'd like more transparency around this program. Uh, it's interesting because when we think of spies and regulating spies, we always kind of look at CSIS or the cyber spies, the CSE. But there's other kinds of information gathering, even if it's not espionage, that I think we should be keeping a closer eye on um, and, and, and going from there. Because, again, um, Canada doesn't have a foreign intelligence agency, but it's kind of like I feel that we're trying to be like get around the issue by having this GSRP program. So we don't do intelligence, but we gather information. And sometimes it looks a lot like what spies do, but sometimes it doesn't. Um, We need to decide where we want to go with this. Do we actually want to create a Canadian CIA or a Canadian MI6? Or alternatively, do we just kind of back away from this and maybe more tightly regulate the GSRP and make it clear that these aren't spies, these are actually diplomats, and maybe keep a a little bit of a closer eye on what they're doing? I think that's really the decision we have to make going forward. Professor Stephanie Carvin at Carleton. Okay, before I let you go, uh, we are also in that Globe and Mail report. Uh, Michael Spavor has retained counsel uh, threatening to sue uh, global Affairs and the uh, Global Security Reporting Program and or Michael Kovrig, who got him into this. Uh, let me uh, 
qualify you as an expert witness. <laughs> um, <laughs> what what is the uh, the legal path for Spavor? Because of course he just says, "Hey, I promote tourism into North Korea. I didn't do this. I had lunch one day with Kovrig, and here's what happened." Yeah, so it's going to be interesting. I mean, you're, if you want my gut feeling on this, the government is not going to want to fight this out. I strongly suspect someone's preparing a check for Mr. Spavor as we speak. Um, yeah, that was my uh, sense as well. Not, yeah, they're not going to want to hash the details about this uh, particular circumstance in, in, in much detail, right? Um, so I don't think that, that you know, so but so legally, I'm not a lawyer. Um, what I would say is, I mean, he can charge that if, you know, Mr. Koberg was acting on behalf of the government um, as a result, uh, you know, as, as part of his job. Uh, when he met with Mr. Spavor, then, uh, you know, the the legal responsibility of the government of Canada follows his actions, right? Um, so that would kind of be the basis of this. But, yeah, I don't think anyone in Ottawa is really kind of wanting to see this hit the court. So I suspect we'll see some kind of um, uh, remuneration to Mr. Spavor sometime uh, in the near future. It's always great hearing your insight. Keep up the great work. And thanks so much for uh, sharing your time this morning. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. It's always, I, you know, how often do I get to talk to Saskatchewan? Not very often. So hello, Saskatchewan, and thanks for having me on. <laughs> professor I- Stephanie Garvin in Ottawa, associate professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton. And uh, her uh, 2021 book called Intelligence and Policymaking, The Canadian Experience, uh, did go into an analysis of this global security reporting program. And I thought she did a great job of explaining uh, it is the work that goes on in global affairs, not necessarily spying and human intelligence, but global affairs gathering information. And I did think that Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, Michael Kovrig rocks a suit really well in a weird James Bondy way. Uh, you ever just, just look at Kovrig. Now you start to look and you think, maybe was he really kind of a Canadian version of a spy? Now, none of this excuses China, not for a second, but it's uh, got a lot of people talking. Thoughts, 877-332-8255. Maybe you think China was justified in the two Michaels. I, I don't know anyone who believes that, but maybe I don't know you yet. This is 650 CKOM and 980 CJME. Say you want a revolution, well, you know. Tell me that it's evolution, well, you know, we all want to change the world. I'm John Gormley. Coming up, uh, the Saskatchewan government, which back in early November, you will remember, Sask Power did a formal response to the feds on... The so-called clean electrical generation standard. Well, yesterday, the Saskatchewan government gave its political response. And, of course, what it did was to summarize Sask Power. And if you think we can be at a so-called clean electrical standard, that there will be so-called net zero emissions electricity by 2035... It's not going to happen in this province. We'll run over some of that, and I'll ask you what you think Saskatchewan should do. And one of the interesting points that John Iveson made in his column, 
you wouldn't believe how much energy in Canada already on electrical generation is completely emissions-free. 82% of all the electricity in Canada today is emissions-free. Hydro, Hydro-Quebec, Nuke in Ontario. So there appears to be a couple of pesky provinces, and it's always this way, that rely, of course, on natural gas, mainly also coal. And the weird part about those pesky little provinces is they create much of the economic activity in Canada in mining oil, gas. They're called Saskatchewan and Alberta. That's coming up here just after the bottom of the hour. So we were just chatting with Stephanie Carvin, uh, academic foreign policy analyst and uh, a professor at Carleton University. So you've got this odd thing, and she mentioned and described it so well, the gathering of human intelligence, or if you read a lot of spy books, Humint. We don't have a Humint gathering agency foreign in Canada. The U.S. is a CIA, Brits have MI6, so we will often have in the Global Affairs Department a group called the Global Security Reporting Program. They just go out and gather information. A lot of it's not high-level intelligence, it's just keeping your ear open in different countries around the world. It's turning out, according to the Globe and Mail, that Michael Kovrig was part of this, and he had visited with Michael Spavor passed along what Spavor had told him to the Global Security Reporting Program in the Foreign Affairs Department. They shared it with the five eyes. And that's one of the pretexts that China used to snap up both Spavor and Kovrig. And I'm with Stephanie. Spavor's lawyered up. He's preparing a huge lawsuit against Kovrig and the government of Canada. Settlement non-disclosure agreement incoming. This is 650 CKOM and 980 CJME. A Monday warrior mean, mean stride. Today's Tom Sawyer mean, mean stride. I'm John Gormley. Good to have you here and, uh, Thank you for joining us. Yes, the countdown continues today, tomorrow, Friday. And I'm done. Um, I, I Okay, I love the term. Like, I'm not retiring as much as I'm transitioning. I'm doing you know, other things. Friend last night says, uh, what you're really doing is rewiring, not retiring. Okay, that's not a bad one. So uh, maybe I'll run with that. Evan Bray, uh, Evan and I, the last few nights have been on a bit of a road show around the province, and gosh, we've had some fun. And if you are here Monday, the Evan Bray Show debuts, and you should be here, I think you're going to be in for some really interesting radio. I can hardly wait. Okay, so uh, survey out, and this is uh, with, uh, uh, Canadian Press is carrying this one. It is a Leger survey. I don't know if it was done for the Canadian press. Uh, this was uh, Leger uh, surveying 1,531 people online, asking a range of questions about carbon pollution, the carbon pricing uh, p- pollution. Just, okay, don't get me going on the whole pollution thing, but 
Because if plants get a vote, they would never call carbon dioxide pollution, but don't let me be too technical. So 1,531 isn't a bad uh, size if you're doing a Canadian survey, but this is an online poll. So they get an online pool of people, they ask the questions. Always, I would submit a little less spontaneous and a little less random, but you know me in polling. But it does show you some pretty good trends. So they're asking people if they know about the home heating fuel carve-out that Mr. Trudeau did at the point of the bayonet being held by the Atlantic caucus inside the Liberal Party. This was interesting. About 51%, 52% of people knew about this carve-out. 48% weren't aware of it. So that really tells you just about how tuned in, because you're very tuned in. I mean, you've heard about this. A lot of you reacted quite reflexively, same way I did. You know, part of the bargain of living in Canada is we have to keep our homes warm at minus 40. So whether you use home heating oil, whether you're using propane, whether you're using natural gas, the government taxes all of that specifically on its carbon tax. And for keeping your home functioning and warm, you get to pay it an extra tax. I just think it's iniquitous. Uh, it's wrong, and it's not good policy. There are other ways you can reduce emissions of carbon dioxide without hitting people on home heating. Or maybe, even if you believe, you've just got to say, okay, you get a free pass. Much of the world does not live in places where, in the winter, if you're outside or you're inside without a furnace, you will die. But that's Mr. Trudeau. So awareness, 51-ish, 48, yes, aware, not aware. So when they asked, should all home heating fuel be exempted from the carbon tax? 70% of Canadians said yes. So that is an overwhelming number. Now, when you get to people under 25, and this is the group most heavily absorbed, inculcated, and propagandized by carbon hysteria, uh, go to under uh, 25 years old, it wasn't 70%. It was still a majority, but it was 58. So that was the only age group. And again, even still, uh, over half of those. So the expansion uh, to all home heating fuel, um, 78% of people uh, in the Atlantic say they were happy with heating oil. When you talk about expansion overall, Albertans and Saskatchewanians were the highest number. We were about 78%, and nationally it was 70 So that was the latest Leger poll. But this does walk us into a related aspect of this. Ottawa, as you know, has rolled out a series of, and this is legislatively passed law, but now the regulations are coming out. A thing called the Clean Electricity Regulations. So, Ottawa wants Canada's entire power grid by 2035 to be so-called net zero electricity. So in other words, the creation of power would elicit, emanate, uh, create 
zero carbon dioxide, zero methane, zero nitrous oxide. And if you don't know how power generation works, Sask Power, which is our power company in this province, government-owned, like our gas company is, Sask Power puts billions of dollars into infrastructure and capital. Every dollar Sask Power makes is being recycled into projects that go out, the outward planning curve, is often 10 years or more. Because if you're going to build a brand new generating station, uh, here's your problem. Saskatchewan's population rising at the most impressive rates we have since the early 1900s. So you get more people in the province. Okay, there's more people needing electricity every time they turn on the lights. And if there's one industry, we've talked about this before, where adults run the industry, doesn't matter where you are, the engineers who work in a power company are adults. Maybe at home on their own time, they virtue signal. Maybe they get on social media and get all woke. I don't know. But day in and day out, the engineers and the experts in a power company know some pretty consistent truths. You have to have reliable baseload power. So John Iveson points out that about 82% of Canada's electricity systems already emission-free because either hydro, which is the case in Quebec, Manitoba, Newfoundland, Labrador, BC. I mean, imagine Manitoba is 100% emissions-free next door. Because hydro, or water-generated uh, electrical turbine generation, is what they use. So they don't have the same issue we have. But there are two provinces, three provinces actually, because Nova Scotia, PI, get into this a little bit. But the two main provinces that operate electricity systems not based on hydro and nuclear power are Saskatchewan and Alberta. We have a little bit of hydro here, but very little. Most of our power generation comes from natural gas. Now, we have said that we are retiring our coal plants that currently create about a quarter of our electricity. And again, part of that long-term planning curve, over the next number of decades, we phase out coal. What we've been doing is building a lot of these three, not a lot, several 300 megawatt natural gas plants. One near the Battlefords, one near Swift Current. You're seeing these plants go up. You don't build these things fast. You don't cost them fast. You don't plan them fast. So Saskatchewan has taken the position, and now the actual regulations are out. Saskatchewan, on November the 2nd, submitted our official response. The government yesterday came out to say the regulations that are being advanced under this should not proceed as they're currently proposed. Uh, Dustin Duncan, who's the Minister of the Crowns, and in his case, he's responsible on the whole clean electricity front. This will jeopardize the reliability of Saskatchewan's power grid, and power rates will be made unaffordable. If Saskatchewan were to follow these regulations, by 2035, your average family electricity rates would over-double. Also, it would cost Saskatchewan, in terms of trying to accommodate this, about $40 billion. So how much power are we generating? Well, about 5,400 megawatts. Saskatchewan would have to replace, rebuild, and expand 
and this is what we would have to put into our power grid more than 5,400 megawatts in 11 years. So how do you basically double what we have today or recreate it all in 11 years? You don't. Now, we're moving toward nuclear here. We'll look at small modular reactors. We're looking at a lot more natural gas, and natural gas is twice as efficient as coal. But still, natural gas is on Ottawa's forbidden list. So in the regulations originally, Ottawa said zero natural gas by 2035, which is insane. They did modify it to say any gas plant built before 2035 can operate for 20 years. So if we go ahead and build some more natural gas plants, and we're doing that right now, we'll have 20 years of being able to run them. But after that, they have to be equipped with carbon capture and storage. And as you know, we've done carbon capture and storage in this province. We're one of the developers of it, but it's not cheap. So even all of those natural gas plants kicking out 300 megawatts, uh, 250, 350, they would have a life expectancy that once their 20 years is up, you'd have to hook up billion-dollar CCS technology on each of those plants. So it doesn't take you very long to figure out how you get to $40 billion. So the Saskatchewan government says, fundamentally, this is not going to work. Now, the government also raises a constitutional issue. And as you know, we won on Bill C-69, the No More Pipelines Act, the Federal Impact Assessment Act. It was an overreach. Well, Saskatchewan argues also that generation of electrical power, which is exclusively a provincial responsibility, can't be intruded upon by the feds in the way this is going on. Talk more about that next. Do you think we're going to see the day when Ottawa will stand down on this? I don't think we will with this version of the federal government. Justin Trudeau and the radical zealot who is his minister of climate change and environment, Stephen Gibo, they're not going anywhere on this. They've promoted this. They've used computer models that really disadvantage us, and I don't see him backing down. The only thing that changes this, and I couldn't see a brand-new Liberal Party, but either a brand-new Liberal Party that doesn't have Trudeau, doesn't have Wilkinson, doesn't have uh, Gibo in it, or a new government. Okay, so why are we arguing Constitution on this? I'll tell you that next. I'm John Gormley, 877-332-8255. This is 980-CJME and 650-CKOM. John Gormley, so Saskatchewan, and this would be our province, regardless of one's political worldview, has to build baseload power. So we create about 5,400 megawatts power generation, and the baseload, the power, in other words, that's there day and night all the time, so when you flick on a switch, you get light, 
you get warmth, you get electricity that powers your furnace, which is run on natural gas more often than not. Most of that power is created by natural gas. Some coal, but we're at about 70% of our generating capacity is done with those two fossil fuels. The vast majority of the 70% is natural gas. The balance is coal. So Saskatchewan says the response that we've created, and this comes from, the, the first of all, the public consultation period is, do we agree with Ottawa's clean electricity regulations? Saskatchewan emphatically says no, because we would have to completely duplicate the existing 5,400 megawatts and we'd have to build more because, again, the other thing Ottawa's doing, circa 2035, 100% of new vehicles are going to have to be electric. Now, I don't give that much a chance of happening either, but go back to adults who run power companies. If that is a mandate, you've got to have the grid and the and the capability, and that's probably, I think the numbers are about a 20 to 30% bump in your electrical generation just when people start plugging in cars every night. So that, too, will be a huge infrastructure demand. $40 billion is what Saskatchewan says. So constitutionally, here's where it gets interesting. Saskatchewan won, as did Alberta, the recent federal reference on Bill C-69, around these parts we called it the No More Pipelines Act. It was Ottawa's Impact Assessment Act. Uh, the provinces have exclusive jurisdiction over certain things. Ottawa was overbroad and overreached in what it attempted to regulate. Well, in Section 92A1 of the Constitution, the provinces actually don't share jurisdiction with anybody on, quote, development and management of electricity generating facilities. We have exclusive jurisdiction. So part of this federation in Canada, Section 92 lays out what the province's powers are. 91 lays out what the feds are. Uh, The feds got away with their carbon pricing initiative because there was a vacuum. And there was the issue that the overarching peace order in good government, because the climate crisis was so compelling, Ottawa could levy this tax on us. Can it override our exclusive power on electrical generation? A lot of legal scholars would say the feds have got to go back to the drawing board on that. They can't impose on us how we're going to manage, how we're going to develop our electrical generation. So I don't think you've seen the end of this one yet. And 2035 feels like a long time. 11 years to completely double up Sask Power's entire capacity? No. Hey, coming up, 11 o'clock already. My final edition. This is the week of finals. Saskatchewan's smartest radio listener, next on 650 CKOM and 980 CJME.